We're gonna be in Exodus chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. We have it on the church app and the scripture text will be on the screen as well. We are gonna be in Exodus chapter 12. We're gonna be looking at verses 29 through 42. 29 through 42. It says, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leaven, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provision for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all people of Israel throughout their generations." Now, I have a question for you. Can power and emptiness coexist? Can power and emptiness coexist? Richard Collier writes, in 1938, Hitler was visiting Italy uh, to meet with Mussolini uh, to see if they could form an alliance for power between the two. So, uh, Mussolini gathers all the people and puts them in the streets. They roll out the red carpet. Mili the military might of Italy is paraded through the streets of Florence. And for four hours, Mussolini put on this absolute show. Well, what Hitler noticed as he was looking down the streets in the parades that everyone in the crowd had this sullen look of apathy, like they had eaten something disgusting. So what happened is Mussolini made all the villagers put speakers in their windows and they started playing a popular Italian movie that was full of cheers. So Hitler was hearing fake crowd noise cheering him on while watching people's faces look at him with pure disgust. It was at this point that Hitler knew something was very wrong. He had all of this power, all of this power and might, but yet... He couldn't make the people praise him. This is power and emptiness 
together, which really is no power at all. We see this exact same empty powerlessness with Pharaoh in our text. Pharaoh is this powerful king of the land, but we see when he is put up against the one true God, full of all power and might, that he's paper mache, that he's a hollow shell. This is a facade. We see here in the text that God is not a facade, that God reveals his power through love. We see God's power revealed through love, and he does it in two ways, through rescue and through care. God's power is revealed through love, through rescue, and through care. And we see God's rescue for his people in verses 29 through 32. So 29 through 32, we see God's rescue. It's here where we learn that uh, Israel, up to this point, has spent 400 years in slavery. 400 years, generation after generation. All their meemaws and pawpaws and great-granddads and everybody, all they're known as. Every, they have only known slavery for 400 years. Their children's lives were threatened. They were beaten. They were abused. They were stripped of their human dignity. Pharaoh treated Israel like they were farm equipment. Imagine your whole life being told that you are nothing but farm equipment. This is what's leading up to this. Their lives were full of insult and injury. But we know God heard their cries. We've learned already that God heard their cries. He sent these 10 plagues, and now we see this 10th plague is in full effect. The death of the firstborn has happened. And notice in verse 29, there's a distinction being made here. It's, it's very, very uh, telling for us. It says, from the throne to the dungeon, God's judgment fell upon Israel's oppressors. This is from the top of royalty, the, the influencers of their day, so to speak. They had tons of followers, all this power, all this prestige, all the way to the prisoner, all of the oppressors of God's people experienced the judgment of God. Pharaoh, the king of the land, who thought he was a God, who made people treat him as he was a God, he became emptied of all the power that he thought that he had. The people saw this man who said he had so much power completely emptied into a shell of a person when he was confronted with God. Notice in verse 30, we see Pharaoh rose in the middle of the night to be confronted with the truth that he is a power poser. Pharaoh is a power poser. Think about it. For a king to have a plague affect him in his palace, the same way it affected the prisoner, that was massively humiliating and humbling. Not only that, but to be awakened in the middle of the night to deal with anything was even more embarrassing. He's supposed to have concentric circles of people who take care of things for him, but he's awakened and he learns that the firstborn in all the land has been killed. His lineage, his succession for his kingdoms 
has been broken. Now, historically, the royal class were sometimes the last people who would experience the effects of a plague. Normally, the people in the countryside experience it. They retreat into their hillside homes and they stay away from kind of uh, the disease and sicknesses. Not only that, but to be awakened from beauty sleep as a king, all of this was God's way of telling Pharaoh, you are not in charge. Not only are you not in charge, but the whole world's gonna see that you're a fraud, that I am the king, and he is breaking Pharaoh's spirit down like a shotgun, just breaking it down. If that doesn't make sense, you can break down a stroller with one little button and the whole thing collapses. Maybe that might make sense. God's breaking Pharaoh down like a stroller or a shotgun here. And we look for Pharaoh's response, and he gives this response. Look in verses 31 and 32. It's here where he summons Moses and Aaron back to his fortress, when ironically, a few chapters ago, he kicked them out of the fortress, denouncing their God. Now he's bringing them back, and he's telling them uh, to go and worship their God, and he asks for a blessing, and he says, up, go out from among my people both you and the people of Israel, and go and worship the Lord. Now, why do I highlight the people here? This is a multifaceted confession. And did y'all know, this is kind of Bible trivia here, this is the first time in the book of Exodus where Pharaoh refers to Israel as a people. The first time in the whole book where Israel is referred to as people. Now you're saying, why is that important? What God is doing is making the abuser concede defeat and acknowledge the dignity of his victims. God is restoring dignity to Israel by hearing from the mouth of the abuser that they are a people and that God is their God and they are worth being fought for. What's happening here is heart level humiliation. This is heart-level humbling that's coming to Pharaoh. Now, on one hand, you can admit defeat. You can admit defeat, but you can also simultaneously never acknowledge the humanity of the people that you hurt. I saw this in a book I was reading, and this CIA agent was sharing about his incredibly uh, interesting life. Well, one thing that he would do is he would prosecute escaped Nazis from Germany who came to live in America with a false identity and tried to leave their life behind. This guy's sole job was to do constant research to try to find out who these escaped Nazis were. Long story short, he found this guy. This uh, former Nazi was in his 90s. He put the pieces together. He had the evidence in front of him, and he was caught red-handed. Now, he admitted defeat, but when everyone left the room, it was this agent in front of this uh, um, Nazi, and they were talking, and the Nazi looks at him, and he says, what's the big deal with all of this? They were just Jews. You see, it's one thing to admit defeat. It's a whole nother thing to admit the dignity and the personhood of those you have hurt. And what God is doing to Israel is restoring them at a heart level, and then it's going to work its way out 
the opposite of the way he's humbling Pharaoh. And God's rescue doesn't just end at the heart level. He's not just telling Israel, you are a people worthy of dignity and respect. But Pharaoh tells them, he says, go and serve the Lord. He uses God's family name. And he says, be gone and bless me also. Now, this is shocking. This is a shocking confession coming from the mouth of Pharaoh. What we're learning here is that this confession is moving from heart-level humiliation to every single thing that Pharaoh's kingdom touched. Everything that was a part of Pharaoh's kingdom has been affected by this plague. Pharaoh here is conceding total and utter defeat from inside of his heart all throughout his kingdom. And he's asking for a blessing from Moses. It doesn't get much more humiliating than this. We're learning here that God is greater than uh, any, any force inside of this world. Even the strongest government power, God is stronger than them. Every power outside of God in heaven and on earth is nothing but a facade. God is the one who's full of power and he will destroy evil. Now, Early readers of this would have been shouting at this point. Israel is free. 400 years of slavery has been broken. God is starting to piece back together Israel's dignity. He's blessing them with freedom from slavery, but he doesn't just stop at bringing them out of prison. He doesn't kick them out of Egypt and say, all right, you're on your own. But he blesses them richly. He frees them and blesses them and sustains them with all the provision from the Egyptians for comfortable living. And you'll notice in verses 34 through 36, they weren't just freed, but they were blessed richly from slaves to very comfortable, maybe even, dare I say, opulence for what you can take as you're about to be freed from slavery. It's at this point we have to ask, what is God teaching us about himself through this text? What is God trying to tell Israel? What is God trying to tell us? Several things, but what leaps out from this passage is that God is powerful, and his power is seen through love. God's power works out through love for the good of his people. And it does several things. God's love is, God's power is seen through love. And on one hand, God crushes evil. God destroys the evil of the oppressors that seek to hurt his children. You see, in God's love and perfect justice, he can't sit by idly and watch his people get destroyed. God in his perfect love, can't coddle evil. To truly love something is to simultaneously hate evil. You cannot say you love something and simultaneously watch that person or thing be destroyed. True love hates evil, and God is revealing that, but true love also promotes life. And God is going through great measures to restore Israel's human dignity. 
He's freeing them from slavery and he's blessing them richly. It's starting from inside of their hearts and it's working out. God's blessing is expansive on his people. God is teaching us that he is a God who constantly saves. He's always sustaining and he's always freeing his people. Sue Zorman tells a story about a time that she was in Mexico and she saw this gentleman selling parrots. And she noticed as he was selling the parrots that the parrots were not caged, nor did the parrots have some sort of uh, ankle something on their claws. I guess you call it parrot's claws. Um, I will not quit my day job and become a zoologist. They were not chained down by any means. So she comes up to him and she asks, well, do these birds love you so much that they just refuse to fly away? Listen to his response. He says, no, I trained them to think that their perches mean safety and security. When they come to think this, they wrap their claws tightly around the perch and don't want to release it. They keep themselves confined as if they've forgotten how to fly. They create their own chains in their minds. We're a lot like parrots here. We are a lot like parrots. Now, although we might not be in physical slavery today, we still cling to our metaphorical perches like these parrots for safety and security. You see, God rescuing Israel out of Egypt was a historical event that signifies a spiritual reality for all of us today. We are, outside of Christ, enslaved to sin, and in Christ, we are still plagued by our own sin. And oftentimes in our sin, what it causes us to do is cling like parrots to things other than Jesus for safety and security, forgetting that in Jesus there is freedom if you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, your sin keeps you from seeing that in Christ there actually is perfect freedom with him. Now, for some of us, we might cling to material things to provide us safety and security. What happens to things? They all have a shelf life. That material good that once brought you happiness and joy starts to break apart. The seams start breaking. Rust develops on it. It gets old. It loses its ability to make you happy and secure. So at that point, what do you do? You then go and buy more things and more stuff. And then you chase that never-ending desire to have things to make you happy and secure. And then you can never enjoy anything around you because you're always chasing something else. Soon you look around and you might have material things caving in on you, literally, or you might realize that you are in a spiritual prison of slavery to stuff, bowing the knees at material goods to provide you relief and security. Now, you might not be uh, the materialistic person, but uh, another way this works out is we cling to relationships or job performance or maybe how well your business is doing. 
So when that loved one or that person you care a lot about tells you how wonderful you are and how good of a job you've done and how proud you are, or that boss says, man, you knocked that out of the park, you're such an excellent employee, etc." or your business is taking off in the middle of a pandemic, you might feel like, man, I'm really something. I have worth. There's intrinsic value based on what I'm doing. But what happens when that relationship inevitably fails? Relationships have shelf life. Where do you find your safety and security? What happens when you start failing at your job or you age out of your job and you're no longer to accomplish that same work anymore? Where does your worth and value come from? What happens if experiencing blessing, your business grows in the middle of the pandemic and the board votes you out of your position because you're a liability to the company. What happens in the face of blessing? You learn that you are no longer worthy to be in that position. Where do you cling to for safety and security? Everything on earth has a shelf life. Relationships were meant to end. Things will grow old. Where's the hope? You see, only in Jesus will you ever be able to be ultimately satisfied, ultimately, eternally satisfied, meaning no matter what good happens to you or what bad happens to you, you will be able to be evenly satisfied through life's up and downs through Jesus. Not meaning that you won't suffer or feel pain, but you have one in Jesus who is your constant care and satisfaction because it's only in Jesus who is God in the flesh, completely eternal, who came to earth and died for you and says, I love you, not just as you are, but despite how you are. It's Jesus's love who rescues us for living for things and stuff. It's the love of Jesus that keeps us from living and bowing the knee to personal opinion or our own human performance. It's the love of Jesus that says, I've died on the cross for you. It is finished. You are mine. I love you. I care for you more than you will ever know. See, when you understand that, when you understand that you cannot make God love you more or less than he does right now in Jesus, when you understand that type of love that doesn't hinge on your performance but on Christ's performance, you realize that you're free. And what happens when you realize you're free is that you'll love your, yourself better. You'll have grace for your own mistakes. You'll love others better by having grace for their mistakes. And even better than all that, you'll love God more. Because you'll be shocked to see the depths that he went through to make you free. So how does God prove his love for us? He reveals it through rescue, but secondly, he reveals it through care. He reveals it through care, and we see that final uh, uh, care through verses 37 through 42. Now notice first the astonishing number of people that were brought out of um, Egypt. Notice uh, of all these people that brought, it started with Abraham. God told Abraham, even as an old man, that 
your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. What do we see happening? In 37 through 42, we see that about 600,000 people were brought out. That's not including women, not including children, nor is it including uh, battle-age males, okay, non-combative males. So when you add all those figures together from these two older people, brought millions and millions of people that God has brought to himself. But not only does God keep his word there, but in his care, he allows non-Israelites to join the Exodus. Look at verse 38. It said a mixed multitude went up with them. This phrase mixed multitude in the Hebrew language, it means a miscellaneous people who are attaching themselves to a group which they didn't naturally belong. This means that in the Exodus, during these plagues, there were Egyptians who saw what was happening and came to confess God as their God and left and joined Israel inside of the Exodus. God's care is bringing millions of Israelites to himself, growing that people group, bringing non-Israelites with him. But God's care party doesn't stop there. Look at verse 42. It says, it was a night of watching by the Lord, and it's to be kept by all generations. And this night of watching revealed the constant care and protection of God for his people who had no ability to defend themselves. God is teaching Israel and all of us that he is our keeper that he is our protector, that he is the guardian of his people. Thank goodness it's not us. We are fickle, we are weak. We need God's mighty hands to guard us and protect us and to care for us. We see this teaching further in Psalm 121. Psalm 121 teaches us that God neither sleeps nor slumbers and that he's our constant keeper who guards us night and day all the way through eternity. We just don't meet God's care and provision on earth, but we have that same loving fatherly care for all of eternity. This is very different from the gods of this world seen in Pharaoh and all these false gods who promised to give life. But when things got hard, when they're confronted with the power of God, these false gods reveal themselves to be lame, empty, and absolutely useless. Israel needed to remember this truth. Israel needed to hear that this night of watching was for them for all of eternity. They needed to hear this because in chapter 13, they're gonna start out on a really difficult journey. They're gonna start on a really rough road. And when life gets painful for Israel, they want to wander. They wanna put on the blinders and forget about God's constant care and provision. Life gets hard for God's people and they get short-sighted really easy. This reminds me, uh, there's this medical condition called developmental topographical disorientation. Developmental topographical disorientation, I'll call it DTD because you don't need to hear me say that word over and over in uh, Southern uh, slang there. There's this lady, her name is Mary McLaurin. 
she suffers from DTD. And what this means for her is that she cannot form in her brain a, a, a picture of her surroundings. She has no clue if she were to walk out of this door and take a right how to get back in this room. She's sharing a story about a time she was staying with a friend, took her dog out for a walk, and just turned the block. She says as she was walking the dog, she completely forgot where she was. She had no clue which way she was coming from or going. She was completely paralyzed with fear. As she's writing, she was like, well, do I go and knock on a neighbor's door and say, can you please get the police for me to take me back to my friend's house? Where's my friend's house? I didn't write down the address. I don't know where I'm going. Listen to what she says about her life. She said her life is often a mix of anxiety, depression, isolation, self-doubt, and shame. Could you imagine how heartbreaking it is for her to live like that? Can you imagine how painful it is to just feel like she's wandering with no help, needing someone to constantly come and care and rescue, for, rescue her? For us, when life gets very difficult, when the uncertainty of life hits, when our plans fail, when things were supposed to be going this way in my plan and God makes them go this way, it's easy to get in a state of spiritual DTD. God, where am I going? God, what are you doing? Did I make the, the wrong choice? Did I marry the right spouse? Did I make the wrong job, to, job vocational choice? Uh, did I make the wrong friends? Did I study the wrong thing in college? Did I raise my kid wrong? Am I caring for my family correctly? Am I, am I, have a, what, what am I doing? That's spiritual DTD. It's getting lost in the confusion of thinking that somehow you're in control and you're going to be able to navigate the complexities of life by yourself. And it's in these moments where you forget that there is no plan B with God, that if you're trusting in Jesus, you cannot fail, you cannot mess up. Even in your mistakes, God uses those mistakes for your good and his glory. Church, we need this reminder daily. We need to remind ourselves. We need to look around at each other and remind each other of this truth because it's so easy for us to start wondering in the what ifs or living in the regret of the past. And we get so lost and confused and we start beating ourselves up with shame and anxiety. We need each other to lift our eyes up to God and his constant help and his constant care who rescues us and saves us and sustains us, whose ceaseless and endless care is seen for all of us. Os Guinness tells a story about in the Soviet Union, there was a time when periodically the KGB would come through worship services and um, uh, arrest and take these people away in handcuffs and you would never see these worshipers again. So he was telling about the Soviet Union uh, during this particular period, uh, the KGB was just ransacking through churches. And uh, as the KGB was coming through, people were running in terror, there was tons of fear, there, everybody was scattered. 
And this KGB agent noticed this older lady sitting at uh, the foot, kind of at the front of the church. And he noticed in everybody's fear, she stayed knelt and she was praying, and I don't recommend this, but she was kissing the foot of this wooden figurine of Jesus. That's literally idol worship, don't do that, but for the sake of the illustration, stay with me, all right? So she's there in her fear. She doesn't know anything else to do except cling to this representation of Jesus. She's clinging. She's kissing the feet of Jesus, and this KGB agent is really impressed. Everybody else is fleeing, and he sees this old lady there, and he says this. He says, Grandmother, are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general secretary of our great communist party? In tongue-in-cheek, she said this. It's actually kind of funny. She says, why, yes, I'm ready to kiss his feet, but only if you crucify him first. What in the world causes this uh, more mature lady, this elderly lady, to look at the face of the KGB and tell them that she would worship him if they would just kill him first? What can cause someone to do that? What she possessed was an immovable faith in the God of the universe who created all things and sustains them by his word, who she knows proved all of that love and care by sending Jesus to die on the cross. And it's at the cross where God's rescue and care are seen vividly because it's on the cross where Jesus is dying for the sins of God's people, yet simultaneously praying that God would forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. Caring for people in the crowd, making sure that people had provision for care after he died. She had an immovable faith in that Jesus who died as a lamb but is coming back as a lion who sends his spirit even now to protect his people and his church. She trusted in that Jesus who conquered the worldly leaders, who conquered Satan, who conquered death, and says that I will be with you to the end of the age. She had faith in that God. Not the, the fallen idols of this world who are empty and absolutely powerless, but she had faith in the God who controls all things by the power of his word, who reveals that power through his love for us, who rescues a mixed multitude like us. We are that mixed multitude. And he cares for us even when we don't even see his hand of care in our lives. Rest in that truth. Rest in that truth. Tell that truth to other people around you and watch God rescue and care for more and more people. Let's pray. Father, it is astonishing uh, to know how much you love us. It is uh, incredible to know that even in the depths of our sin, you would send Jesus to bear that sin on the cross and to die for it, Lord. But even after we profess faith, Lord, we still get spiritual DTD and we wander from you and the fear and the uh, the cares of this world overcrowd the space in our mind and we forget to remind ourselves that you are with us day and night, that you care for us, that there is no plan B with you, that you are sustaining us 
and caring for us. And Lord, that is where true freedom is found. Lord, by your spirit, impress that truth into our lives and our hearts because uh, as soon as we finish this last song, there's gonna be cares and worries hitting our minds. Lord, would you help us to fight back that dialogue with the dialogue of the good news that there is nothing in this world that can snatch us out of your hand, that you are with us and you are our ever-present help. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.